where you are receiving your comfort in full. And later, Luke 8.14, the seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. And then in Luke 12 and Luke 16, we have two parables where rich men are the negative object lesson. And then we have, of course, the story about the rich young ruler who asked Jesus a question about how to gain eternal life, but he didn't like Jesus' answer. And so he walked away from Jesus and the kingdom. We saw last time, Luke 18, 23. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. So having met this rich young ruler and seen him off, let's see how Jesus responds. Still on? Okay. First, let's look at Matthew 19. We have parallels, as usual, between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew 19, verses 23 to 30. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, Then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, With people this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. And then the parallel in Mark 10, 23 to 31. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, With people it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. And finally, Luke 18 24 to 30, Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, The things that are impossible with people are possible with God. And Peter said, Behold, we have left our own homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come, eternal life. Well, we'll start first at Jesus' lesson. This is Jesus' lesson after the rich young ruler has left. 
Matthew 19, 23 and 24. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And then Mark 23, and we'll skip a bit for now and look at verses 24 and 25. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And Luke 18, 24 and 25. And Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And you see a few differences as usual. In Mark, we see Jesus looking around and in Luke, it says Jesus looked at him, that is, the rich young ruler. And Matthew and Mark, if you remember the story from last time, they have the rich young ruler leaving before Jesus makes these statements here in these verses, but Luke doesn't explicitly mention him leaving. So if you had just Luke, you might get the impression that the rich young ruler was still standing around. But I think what happened is Jesus watched this young man as he walked away. And so Jesus is looking at him as in Luke, but then he looks at the man, and then he looks around at the disciples as well, as Mark says. So that's it's pretty easy to harmonize those statements. And Jesus says this, how hard it is for one who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God. Notice here that Matthew uses each term, kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God. Usually we've seen Matthew use the term kingdom of heaven. It may be because of the the, the Jewish um, practice of not trying to use the name of God if they can help it. It's interesting when you do a search for kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven in Matthew. Matthew uses the term kingdom of heaven 34 times but only four times does he use the term kingdom of God. But in this case, you can see the term kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God are explicitly tied together. They're the same thing. They're not different things. And in Matthew, we have Jesus emphasizing what he's saying. He says, truly, I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And as we've said again many times, when Jesus says, truly, I say to you, he's not saying the other times I was lying, but this time I'm being truthful. But he's saying, this is important. Pay attention. Listen to what I'm saying. And make a note of this. And Mark emphasizes what Jesus says. Jesus emphasizes in Matthew because he says, truly I say to you. In Mark, Jesus emphasizes what he's saying by saying it twice. Once he says it about the rich, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 23. And then in verse 24, he says, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. So he's talking about the rich the first time. Second time, he's talking about everyone. It's hard for anyone to enter the kingdom of God. And in Mark, the disciples aren't amazed just once, but twice. In fact, the second time, they are very amazed. Now, we've talked many times in the past about the kingdom of God, but let's just review it a bit. It's It's been a while, and it's a common theme of the Gospels. But just listen as I read a few of the many verses just from the book of Matthew. In Matthew 3, 2, we have the the main... Uh, theme of what John the Baptist was teaching. He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that is, it's, it's near. And when Jesus begins his public ministry, Matthew four seventeen, he has the same message. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In the Sermon on the Mount, he mentions it several times. He says, verse 3 of Matthew 5, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then later, verse 10, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the poor in spirit and the persecuted are 
those who belong to the kingdom of heaven. But look at Matthew 5.20, it says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And the scribes and Pharisees, at least outwardly, were the most righteous, the most religious folks in the community. But Jesus is saying, to get to the kingdom of heaven, you have to be more righteous than even these men. And also, uh, Matthew 7.21, it's a warning here, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, will enter. So lip service to Jesus as Lord is not enough to get you in the kingdom. It's those who do God's will that will enter. Matthew 8, 11 and 12. I say to you that many will come from the east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom, that is, the, the Jews by birth, will be cast out into the outer darkness, and that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So in this kingdom of heaven, there will be a feast, and at that table will be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as well as many from the nations, the Gentiles, but there are those you would think would be there. Many of the Jews will not be there. They will be in the outer darkness. So the kingdom consists of those from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, as it says elsewhere. Matthew twelve twenty eight. Jesus has an interesting statement here about the kingdom of, of God. If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So the fact that Jesus cast out demons by God's Spirit meant that the kingdom of God is not just a future thing, but it's a present reality. When Jesus is there, casting out demons, the kingdom of God is there among you. And then you could look at the parables in Matthew 13. We won't do that, but you, I think you know them where there's all these parables of the kingdom where the kingdom of heaven is like this. It's like a mustard seed, or it's like leaven, or it's like a treasure in the field, or it's like the pearl of great price, or it's like a dragnet cast in the sea. Jesus, in all these parables, is talking about the kingdom and what it's like. And then one last verse on this topic, Matthew 18, 3. And Jesus says, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So to summarize all these verses, I know it's been a lot, but let's just get the idea here that the kingdom came when Jesus arrived, but it's also a future place. It's a place, say, where there will be dining with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the nations. Jesus says you have to get to the kingdom as a child, but your righteousness has to be greater than the scribes and Pharisees to get there. So you must be childlike, but also righteous. Getting to the kingdom involves doing the will of God, not just performing lip service to Jesus. And it belongs to the poor in spirit and the persecuted, and it's a treasure beyond price. There will also be souls from around the world in the kingdom, and while many you might think would be there, will not be. And I've said it this way before. Thinking about the kingdom, there's you can read lots of articles about it, what it is, but I think it's easiest to say, The kingdom is where the king is. It makes sense, right? Where the king rules. And so in the past, when King Jesus came in his ministry, the kingdom was there. In the present, when Jesus comes into a heart, the kingdom is there. So when someone believes in Christ, Jesus Christ the king takes up residence in that person's heart. And the kingdom has come to them. And then in the future, there will be a kingdom when he comes back. So in the past, present, and future, King Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords, and it is his kingdom that is coming. Now, looking back at the context of what we're studying now with the rich young ruler, what is the rich young man 
looking for? What's this question? Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So this man wants eternal life, and when he walks away, Jesus says it's hard for the rich man to enter the kingdom. And then we'll see shortly, the disciples say, well then, who can be saved? And so in this passage, we have eternal life, we have entering the kingdom of God, and salvation, they're all connected. So you enter the kingdom, you get eternal life, you are saved. They're interchangeable terms, maybe not exactly the same reference or emphasis, but they all involve the same process of God saving sinners and bringing them into the kingdom to enjoy eternal life with him. Now, to show the difficulty of entering this kingdom, Jesus uses this picturesque and really funny comparison. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And one interesting thing that some commentators bring up is that the Greek word for needle in Matthew and Mark is the same. Luke uses, and it's explicitly a sewing needle in Matthew and Mark, but in Luke, he uses a term that's often used of a surgical needle, and Luke was a what? He was a doctor. And so, not only is his word for needle more classical Greek, which we expect from Luke, who's perhaps more educated than Matthew and Mark, he's, he's a Gentile, but he's also a doctor, so we might expect him to, to favor this term for surgical needle than the a regular sewing needle. But this statement about camels and needles has caused a lot of needless discussion. Almost every commentator I've read mentioned something about this, this issue. And some commentators have tried to lessen the difficulty Jesus is talking about in sort of ingenious ways. Surely Jesus can't mean that it's really that difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, some think maybe this word for camel, uh, which is camelos in Greek, really should be camelos. It sounds almost the same. And this word camelos, with it, in, in English we call it an I instead of an E, uh, is a term for a large rope or a cable, maybe an anchor rope. And so some scribes just made an error. But the thing is, is you'd expect if there was this sort of difficulty of hearing camelos versus camelos, that there would be some textual evidence for it. But the only textual evidence is from some uh, late Greek manuscripts, and maybe people sort of changed it along the way. In any case, it's impossible, isn't it, for a rope to go through eye of needle, then that doesn't really help, does it? Anybody try, ever tried to put uh, a rope through an eye of a needle? No. It's hard enough to put a thread through the eye of a needle. I have a hard time doing that. But how much more? A, a rope, I mean, a big rope like that can't go through a needle um, any more than a camel can. But it's less of an interesting uh, metaphor, isn't it? Or, uh, or illustration. Some have proposed a gate, and some of you may have heard this preached before. If somebody preaches on this, they'll say, there's a gate in Jerusalem called the Eye of a Needle, and it's made for pedestrians. It's just big enough for a pedestrian to go through. It's too small for a camel to go through unless it's unloaded and the camel has to crawl through on its knees. And so this becomes a picture of humility. In order for us to get into the kingdom, we must shed ourselves of all our all of our stuff, and we must get on our knees before God and crawl through the hole to get into the kingdom of God. Now, that preaches well, maybe, but it's not what's being referred to here. There's no evidence of a gate called the Eye of the Needle in Jerusalem at this time. And besides, if there were, there, if you needed to get a camel through a, a gate... There's lots of gates in Jerusalem. We've been to Jerusalem. We've seen them. And you wouldn't unload your camel to get them through this little 
hole in the wall if you could just go down a few hundred feet and take them through a real gate. Some of the gates are very large. You can have many camels go through. You can get elephants through them. You can get, in fact, they, they brought in one of the gates to, to bring some some uh, military vehicles through back World War II time, I think, or something like that. In any case, there's lots of space to get through gates in Jerusalem. You don't need to unload your camel, taking a long time just to get through one. So it's best to take the statement of Jesus at face value. You take the largest animal you're likely to encounter in Palestine, the camel, and try and put it through the smallest hole you're likely to see. Take the biggest thing, try and put it through the smallest hole. And it's easier to do that. Jesus doesn't say it's like that. It's easier to do that than for a rich man to enter God's kingdom. And that's really the whole point of the illustration, isn't it? As Jesus will say later, it's not just difficult. It's not just very difficult. It's impossible. That's the point of this illustration. Now, we might ask ourselves, why is it so difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom? There's just a few things we could mention. First of all, and I'll read some verses along with this. You don't have to turn there, but you can just listen. First of all, there's a a temptation to self-sufficiency. A temptation to self-sufficiency, and along with that, there's a blindness to the current condition. Revelation 3.17, speaking of some of the church in Laodicea, you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And so they don't need anything. They have all that they need. But you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So materially speaking, they were very wealthy, but spiritually speaking, they were wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. The rich also have a greater temptation to focus on this life alone. So we have in Luke 12, 19, the rich man says to his soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. He has all this stuff to enjoy for many years. That's what I'm going to focus my, my time on. It says later, you fool, this night your soul is required of you. So he's focused on this life, but not on the afterlife. Luke 8.14, I read earlier, The seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and the pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. So they might hear the word, but they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of life. And then 1 Timothy 6.17, Paul says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. So their hope is fixed on what is here and now, not as what uh, what is in heaven. The rich also have a greater temptation towards evil in some ways. Listen to 1 Timothy 6, 9, and 10. By the way, 1 Timothy 6 has a number of verses on the temptations around money. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Like that, I think it's King James pierced themselves with many a pang. They have many griefs when they they love this money. And that's the temptation. You'll be tempted to sin, to get rich, to steal, to even to murder. But you'll also be tempted to sin to tempted tempted to sin to keep your riches. So to get to keep your riches, you'll be tempted to sin. In fact, even Judas would betray Jesus for money. He wanted to get those pieces of silver, so he betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ. There's also a temptation to forget God. 
the rich are tempted to forget God. Matthew 6.24, Jesus says, uh, You cannot serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. And Proverbs 38 and 9, it's a good one for us to, to know well. It says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, that I be not full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. So those who are full are tempted to deny God and say, Who is the Lord? In Deuteronomy 8 Verse 11 and later, verses 17 and 18. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God. Don't forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I am commanding you today. Otherwise, you may say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth, but you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you the power to make wealth. So you're going to the promised land. God is going to abundantly provide for you, but it is he who is giving you the gift. And don't think that you are the one who has earned these things on your own. Don't forget God and his commandments. And there we see the pride, the conceit that Paul warned about. We saw earlier, First Timothy 6.17, instruct those who are rich in the present world not to be conceited. They think that they are um, the ones who have arrived. They're the ones who have earned these things by their own wisdom. They don't need God. They don't need anyone else. And the main issue in all these things for a rich person and for a poor person as well is the heart. Matthew 6.21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's not the stuff that's the problem. It's the love of stuff. It's where your heart is that's the problem. And that gets to the reason why it's not just difficult, but it's impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom, as we'll see shortly. Now, after Jesus says these things, we have the disciples' astonishment. The disciples' astonishment. Matthew 19.25, when the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, then who can be saved? And Mark has it twice, verse 24. The disciples were amazed at his words, verse 26. They were even more astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? And then Luke 18.26 says, they who heard it said, then who can be saved? They, They can't believe what Jesus is saying. And they apparently had the idea that since God is a giver of all earthly blessings then those who are rich are the most blessed. It has some kind of logic to it, right? We're faithful to God. God makes us wealthy. So if you are wealthy, then you must be really pleasing in God's sight. Bad logic, but you can see how they might get there. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 28. I won't read this whole passage, but there's a whole section from this chapter, Deuteronomy 28, 1 to 14, and I'll just read a few verses here about God blessing the people of Israel. Verse 1, Deuteronomy 28, Now it shall be, if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, commandments which I am commanding you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the country. Blessed shall be the offspring of your body, and the produce of your ground, and the offspring of your beasts, the increase of your herd, and the young of your flock. Skip down to verse 8. 
The Lord will command the blessing upon you in your barns and in all that you put your hand to, and he will bless you in the land which the Lord your God gives you. Verse 11, the Lord will make you abound in prosperity in the offspring of your body and in the offspring of your beast and in the produce of your ground in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. The Lord will open for you his good storehouse, the heavens, to give rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hand. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. So we have this promise from God. If you are faithful to me, then I will bless you materially. We could even look at Abraham. Genesis 13.2 says Abraham, or Abram in this, at this time was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And then Job, Job 1, 1 to 3 says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. So he's a man of great character. The seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the East. And in those days, wealth was generally measured in your your livestock, in your your possessions, not so much in silver and gold. So this man had lots of wealth. God had blessed him with that. And then even after Job loses everything, at the end of Job it says, the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends, and the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. So God doubled his blessing at the end of the story after Job was faithful to God. And then, besides them, there's Isaac and Jacob who inherited their wealth from their their father and grandfather. We have David, Solomon, and others who were wealthy in the Old Testament. So you might think that if, since God is the one who blesses us with wealth, then those who are wealthy are those who have been most pleasing to God. And so that's where we get the disciples' astonishment here. If the rich aren't first in line to enter the kingdom, if they aren't the ones who are the biggest recipients of God's favor, then who else has any hope? Who can be saved? If the rich can't get there, who can be saved? If it's so hard for the rich, how much harder must it be for everyone else? But then we get to God's ability, from the disciples' astonishment to God's ability. Matthew 19.26 says, Looking at them, Jesus said to them, With people this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. In Mark 10.27, Looking at them, Jesus said, With people it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. In Luke 18.27, But he said, The things that are impossible with people are possible with God. And so, we get to an even stronger statement of Jesus than we had before, that it's hard, it's difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom. It's not just hard, it's impossible. It can't be done. And the reason is, as I said before, it's a heart problem. It's a heart problem. You might remember Jeremiah 13.23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin, or the leopard his spots? Then you also can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. You can't change your hearts any more than you can change your skin. Romans 3, 10 to 12, Paul says, There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. 
all have turned aside together, they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. And then this well-known verse, Romans 3.23, For all have sinned, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul's making this case in Romans 3. Whether you're Jew, Gentile, whatever your background, we're all under sin. And we all fall short of God's glory. The glory of God's kingdom, you could say that way. We all fall short of God's kingdom. We can't get there because we are sinners. And we even saw this a few minutes ago, Matthew 5.20, where Jesus says, Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And later he says, you are to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So the standard for entering God's kingdom is perfection, which is impossible for any mere man to accomplish on his own. And that's the key. Rich or poor, no one can be saved on his own. It must be God's work. So while if you go back in some of these passages and you you see just just looking at the verses in isolation, when the man says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, keep the commandments. That sounds like works righteousness, doesn't it? But when you follow the whole thread of Jesus' thought, what he's doing is he's showing the impossibility of, of that way to heaven, to God's kingdom. He's showing that it must be by God's grace. You can't earn these things. It must be God's work. You can't earn God's favor by, I should say, his eternal favor. You can't get into the kingdom by selling all your possessions. That's another thing we can think about. Well, if I just sell all my stuff, can I get to heaven? Of course not. And Jesus, after this discussion, he lands here clearly on salvation by grace alone. And we can look at this well-known passage in Ephesians to remind ourselves of this truth. Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 9. It says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So, looking at what Paul has said here, that you were dead in your trespasses and sins, we can see, again, the impossibility of life. Um, I think most of you have probably been to a funeral before, and maybe open casket, and you see that that, that person, and generally a person that you knew and, and perhaps loved greatly, and you see that shell where their soul lived for its time on this earth. And one thing that I think often is, is the impossibility of that person ever living again, again, besides outside of God's power. Whatever um, you might hook up to that body to bring it back to life, it's just not going to live again. It's impossible with men to raise this body from the dead once it has gone to be with, the soul has gone to be with God. And so that is what our soul is like. It is dead in trespasses and sins. That's what we all were like before Christ. Verse 4 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, 
even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So this raising of this dead body is impossible with men, but it is possible with God. God is able to raise even the spiritually dead to life, even as Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. God the Father can raise us to newness of life, spiritually speaking here, in Christ. Only God can do that. With man, it's impossible. With God, all things are possible. So if there's a rich man who is following his riches, loving his riches, but he repents and and follows Christ, God is the one who has done that work in his heart to raise them to newness of life. So the, it's not that the, the man himself has earned God's favor by selling his possessions or by not loving his wealth anymore, but it's because God has done a work in his heart to raise that dead heart to, uh, to one that is, is living, this heart of stone. God will give them a heart of flesh. So a rich man, poor man, whatever is the case, whatever you're Condition today, God can raise you to newness of life. And all we can do is throw ourselves on God's grace and ask him to save us. I'm going to save the rest for next time, if that's okay with you. Um, I still have a few more verses to go here, but... um, let me just ask a few questions. Well, let me, first of all, do you have any questions yourself before I wrap things up? Sure, you remember the, we'll see later that this, we have the, the men at the temple who have all this money they can pour in the treasury and you can sort of... <clears> Have <throat> you ever been to... <clears throat> see somebody use those coin star machines? Maybe you've done it yourself. You get your, all your loose change, you put it in these these uh, machines and you hear all the clink, 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 clink and you, you share all that money. It, it's almost like that. they got these these sort of uh, receptacles. You, you just pour your money in and you could... I'm sure they, they love putting in every little clink to, to show how much they were giving to the temple of God and how much that must please God. Almost like later on with... Tetzel and, and Luther, every time you, you put a, uh, a coin in the, the coffer, it, it releases a soul from purgatory. That kind of thing. Clink, clink, clink. And yet the, the poor woman only had the, the two little coins to, to give, and it was all she had. But yeah, with, with, with their sacrifices, that they could afford the, the, the big animals when the poor people just had the turtle doves or the young pigeons to give. And In every way, they, they could have more opulent clothing. They could um, have fancier dress and maybe they lengthen the tassels, as Jesus will talk about later in Matthew 23, all the ways that you can uh, externally show your religiousness. They could do that more easily, of course, than the poor people could. And so they, they would look more religious. They'd look more, like they were more in favor with God. That, that's a good point. Yeah, when when the
coin and the coffer rings are sold from Purgatory Springs. He didn't say it in English, of course, but it, it, they have found a good rhyme in English. It's, it's the same kind of thing. Um, I don't know if it's probably German or, or Latin. Yeah. So these, these rich people in Jesus' day were also trying to buy their way into God's favor. And since they had more to buy with, they could buy more favor, according to certain views of, of how God responds. But we'll see later that's not the case. Any more questions? We'll just close by asking a couple of questions of, of all of us, really. Uh, what are you seeking? This young man was seeking eternal life, we saw last week, but was he really seeking eternal life, or was he really seeking eternal life on his own, um, in his own manner? He wanted to keep his things while he got eternal life. You can ask yourselves a similar question. What do you love the most? What you love the most, you can see by what, how you seek it. Where do you spend your time? If I say I love my wife, kids, and spend no time with them, do I really love them? If I say I love the Lord and don't spend time with him, if I don't go to church, if I don't spend time with his people, do I really love God? Or do I spend more time with my computer, my phone, my, my stuff, my, my sports? Um, there's lots of things to distract us. But what we spend our time on shows our, our love. And you don't have to be rich, of course, to have the love of money. You may have uh, seen people at um, the casinos. If you've ever flown through Las Vegas, the whole place, of course, is one big casino, even the airport. And you see these people there who probably don't have enough money to, to really spend on these things. They're sitting at these tables for hour after hour, spending money they don't have on to, to try and win things that they're not going to, to win for a jackpot they'll never get. And so you can still love money, you can still seek money, you can be obsessed with money, even if you don't have any money. As Paul said, the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. Not just money, but the love of money. And some, by doing, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And so was the rich young ruler's problem his money? It wasn't, was it? It was his love of money, and that's what kept him from following Christ and gaining eternal life. You know, I can quote Jim Elliott. I think a lot of you know this quote. He was a young man who was uh, a missionary to Ecuador and was killed with four of his colleagues. And he said this, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So whatever you get in this life, you can't keep it. As they say, there's... No hearses with luggage racks. Uh, you go out with nothing except what you have put up in store in heaven. And so gaining eternal life, gaining heaven, gaining that eternal treasure is something that you cannot lose. So why not give up what you have on this earth for it? And one last question here is where is your hope? Where is your hope? And again, I read this earlier. 1 Timothy 6.17, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Now, you might think, well, I'm not rich, but most of us here today would be considered rich by 99.99% of all people who ever lived. If they saw our cars and our clothes, the fact that we have um, multiple sets of clothes or probably have too much stuff in our closets, um, big homes with 
indoor plumbing and all sorts of food. Uh, we are very wealthy by standards of, of history. And it's easy to fix our hope on our stuff or to let our hope be shaken when we don't have enough stuff. When our 401k isn't going as much as we like or there's a uh, stock market uh, dip or some other thing happens, uh, there's difficulty with supply chains we've experienced recently. All these things can shake us because we have set our hope on these things instead of on Christ. But Psalm 62.10 says this, If riches increase, do not set your heart upon them. God may bless you with more riches, but don't set your heart on those things. And if you want to take your temperature in this area about where your hope is, you can gauge your reaction to others' material prosperity. So are you envious when you hear your co-worker's gotten a raise and you didn't? Or maybe you see a friend with a new car that you can't afford and you're still driving the beater you had from when you were in high school. Uh, how do you react to others' prosperity? Are you envious? And you might think that if I had more money, I wouldn't have to worry. I, I could just be content. There's a story, I can't remember if it was Rockefeller, one of those old rich guys from a long time ago. Somebody asked him, this man who is the pinnacle of wealth, how much is enough? Remember his answer? Just a little bit more. So he's never satisfied. He always, even when he had, in human terms, about everything anybody could ask for, he always wanted a little more. And it's easy even for Christians to feel that way. I could be content with just a little bit more. But First Timothy 6 9 says, Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. J.C. Ryle had the right perspective on this. He said, rich people are not to be envied, they are deeply to be pitied. So if you ever see the show, The Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, and you see all these grand houses and cars and boats and whatever else they've got, and the temptation is to see them and be envious. But what we maybe really should do, we see those kinds of shows, is to to pity them, to pray for them. These people have all sorts of stuff, but how close are they to God? The likely thing is they're very far away from God, and their their things are likely to get in the way of them gaining eternal life through Jesus Christ. So instead of wanting to get rich, we need to be content. Paul says, First Timothy six eight, if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. That's a hard verse to think of, isn't it? Food and covering, that's not very much. That's not, he's not talking about a, a giant uh, bunker full of enough supplies for, for years. He's talking about enough food for today and enough clothing to keep us from, um, from nakedness. With that, we can be content. Paul says in Philippians 4, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And then we can end with the words from Hebrews 13.5. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, 
nor will I ever forsake you. We're content because God has promised never to desert us, nor to forsake us. So if we are discontent, it's not just a grumbling against circumstances, it's a grumbling against who? Against God. We're saying, in a sense, if we're discontent, God, you have deserted me. You have forsaken me. You haven't given me enough of what I need. That's a great sin, isn't it? We saw that in the the people leaving Egypt. What did they do time and time again? They grumbled. They complained because God didn't give them enough. They didn't have enough food, not enough water, not enough meat. And so God judged them for that because it was a slander against God. It wasn't just grumbling, but it was grumbling against God. So may God give us the grace to be content. We have food, we have covering, we have much more than that. Even greater, what do we have? We have Christ. We have eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. And so if God were to take everything away from us, like he did with Job, we would still have God himself. And that's enough, isn't it? It should be. Let's close in prayer. Father, I confess that it's easy to be discontented. It's easy to look at the balance sheet, easy to look at the online report of of, uh, retirement plans and think about Social Security funding and all sorts of things about the future that I have no control over and that are not guaranteed. Even my next breath is not guaranteed. We know that our lives are like a vapor. And our money can disappear like that. We could get a windfall. We could get an inheritance suddenly or or a raise or become wealthy overnight for some reason. And yet even then, our life would not consist in the things we own. We do thank you that we have Jesus Christ and that he is the greatest of all treasures. May we pursue him like so many in this world pursue wealth, even more so knowing that this is an eternal reward Help us not to be caught up in the things in this world, not to be discontent, but to be content to rest on you, knowing that you are the one who has given all good things to us. Help us to be faithful in this way, to follow you and to love you. And if there are those here today who are not in the kingdom, if they have not gotten eternal life, by grace through faith, may they repent today of whatever is keeping them from Christ. Set aside that sin by your grace. May they be born again because it's only you who can do that. All things are possible to you. You can raise the spiritually dead into spiritual life. Do that today, we pray, that you might be glorified and Jesus can be praised. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.